We'll hear argument first this morning in case 16-1067, Murphy versus Smith. Mr. Banner. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, when a prisoner wins a civil rights case and he's awarded damages and he's awarded attorney's fees, the prisoner himself has to pay part of the fees out of the damages judgment. The statute at issue in this case specifies the size of the prisoner's share. This is what the statute says. A portion of the judgment, not to exceed 25 percent, should be applied to satisfy the amount of attorney's fees. In the 20-plus years since the statute was enacted, virtually all the district courts have interpreted it literally. They identify an appropriate portion of the judgment, not exceeding 25 percent, and they deduct that amount from the attorney fee award payable by the defendant. In our case, the Seventh Circuit read the statute differently to mean that attorney's fees must be taken out of the damages first, up to 25 percent of the damages, so that the defendant is only liable for any fees left over. But the statute does not say that. All it says is that the portion of the judgment is that a portion of the judgment no greater than 25 percent must be allocated to fees. Respondents mistakenly suggest that Congress's use of the word satisfy indicates that the plaintiff has to pay the largest possible share of the fees in all cases. But that can't be right because the statute itself says what share the plaintiff has to pay, a portion of the judgment not exceeding 25 percent. The rest of the attorney's fee award in excess of the plaintiff's share is payable by the defendant up to the statutory cap of 150 percent of the damages. There's nothing in the statute. adversary points to a number of statutes that use the verb to satisfy, or I guess not the verb, but the proposition to satisfy, to refer to the complete fulfillment of an obligation. How do you distinguish those examples? The word satisfy often means the complete fulfillment of an obligation, but in this statute, uh, it can't mean that because the statute makes clear that the plaintiff doesn't have to completely fulfill the obligation to pay attorney's fees. The statute says exactly how much. Well, it's sensible to have a cap. It's just a cap. Well, exactly. It's a cap. It's a 25 percent cap. That's right. It's, it's, uh, the statute says that the plaintiff's share of the attorney's fees uh, is 25 uh, percent or less of the judgment. Well, but you start with the notion of satisfaction. In other words, satisfying a debt. I mean, if you owe somebody $100 and you give them 50, that person isn't going to say, well, you've satisfied your obligation. No, that's right. And so the, the, the word satisfy standing alone sometimes often does mean uh, 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 complete payment, but that would make nonsense of the text of this statute. The text of this statute makes clear that the plaintiff doesn't have to pay the attorney's fees. No, no, I understand the point, but it, yeah. I'm just suggesting that that's not uh, certainly a t- total uh, response. Yes, you have to satisfy it, but as Justice Kennedy just suggested, there's also a cap. And if the reason you can't satisfy it is because of the cap, well, that's just the way the statute has balanced the two obligations. But the initial obligation is to satisfy uh, uh, the, the fees. Well, you know, there was a provision like that in some of the precursor bills, right? But this, that sentence was omitted from the final legislation. As this, there, there was a sentence that said exactly the interpretation that, that, that you've just been uh, uh, giving, that the — Uh, that the defendant is liable only for fees in excess of 25 percent of the judgment. Uh, But as the statute was working its way through Congress, Congress rejected uh, uh, that provision. Congress kept the provision that appears in the statute, uh, uh, that appears in the statute, which says that the plaintiff's share is 25 percent or less of the judgment. Why why would the Congress have required that a portion of the judgment be applied to satisfy the award, but then given the dis- district court's discretion to award a trivial amount. Yeah. So that — A, that, a, a penny? Right. That linguistic structure is common in statutes and here quite sensible. It's common, for example, in statutes that require district courts to impose fines. Those are worded in a very similar way. It's, they say — they often say the defendant shall be fined an amount not exceeding X. And so the district court — 
shall impose a fine, has to impose a fine. There's a cap of X, but no floor. And so the district court has a discretion to impose nominal fines. And in fact, nominal fines are not at all unusual. So it's a common linguistic structure for a statute. Here it's, it's quite sensible. The alternative would have been to say that it's up to the district court whether to uh, make the plaintiff pay any share. And while we don't have any direct evidence of Congress's intent here because the uh, legislative history is so sparse, it would have been reasonable for Congress to worry that if it was optional with the district judges, many district judges might say, well, I just, I just don't think it's right to make the plaintiff pay any share at all, uh, ever. That, of course, had been prior practice under Section 1988. This, this statute was a limitation on the previous practice of Section 1988 Council, in which — Council, what do you think? I know in your brief you seem to suggest — that the purpose for giving district court judges discretion was to ensure that the district courts could balance the fault of the defendant vis-a-vis the plaintiff. But I don't see anything in this statute that uh, speaks to fault. Um, I am more moved, and I don't know why or if you have disavowed it, that since the district court is intended in this judgment to compensate for injury, that it should be given some discretion to determine how much of that injury a plaintiff should actually be forced to bear when right. no, he or she was not at fault. Right, exactly. No, we, we, we certainly agree. It would be too strong to say that there's direct evidence that Congress intended any sort of fault-based system in the statute, because all we, the only evidence we have of Congress's intent here is the words uh, of the statute. The words allow a district court to, to go from 25 percent uh, uh, down, and in the 20-plus years that the statute has existed, the district courts uh, have, have implemented that statute by focusing on uh, the defendant's culpability. Let's you don't assume think that it's, uh, you don't think that it's, it would be odd to say, I mean, this, this language can be read either way, and it's, it's very difficult, but you don't think it would be odd to say that the, the defend, that the plaintiff has to pay uh, a nominal amount, a dollar, to satisfy the amount of attorney's fees? How, how can that be satisfaction of attorney's fees if it's a nominal amount? You're, you're never going to have satisfaction of the, of the attorney's fees. The, but that's the, line, that's the word that's used in the statute. And, and what I, what I, when I say there's never going to be satisfaction, the, 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 the attorney, the, the, the plaintiff's share is never going to literally satisfy the attorney fee award. And the, re, the reason I say that is that the um, — the typical judgment in uh, prisoner cases is very, very small. I mean, it's an extraordinarily rare case in which even the maximum 25 percent would literally satisfy. Yeah, but the you could say it, it, the, that the fee ha- that the, the the award has to satisfy the attorney's fees up to the cap. There wouldn't be anything odd about that. It just seems that, uh, it, that you don't think that that's an odd use of the term satisfy. I mean, suppose I a, suppose I a teacher said to the parent, "Your your child can't can't function at school because the child is hungry. Would you give the child a portion of food for breakfast to satisfy the child's hunger?" You wouldn't say, "Well, you know, if I give the child a, a tiny uh, a crumb, that would." satisfy the, the hunger. Right, but, but, but satisfy is often used in other contexts where it's clear that there won't be complete satisfaction of the relevant obligation. So the, in ordinary speech, for example, the, the, an example we gave in our brief is to say that the credits from a math class can be applied to satisfy the requirements of a chemistry major. They're not going to satisfy all the requirements of a chemistry major. They're going to go some way towards satisfying the requirements of a chemistry major. You, uh, know, re- the, you mentioned that the district courts have overwhelmingly understood 25 to be the most that can come out of the plaintiff's recovery. And you asked a question about, well, suppose nominal, a nominal amount is taken from the plaintiff. Do you know what the practice has been in these 20 years in the district courts? Here we have 10 percent. What is the spread? Uh, the spread is uh, 25 percent at the top and 
nominal amounts at the bottom. The, the district courts have actually been implementing the statute in a, in a sensible way. The district courts have been, uh, uh, in deciding on the appropriate share for the plaintiff to pay, the district courts have been considering the extent to which uh, making the defendant pay a greater share will deter future misconduct by prison guards and the extent to which making the plaintiff pay a greater share will deter prisoners with meritorious claims from filing. So, so some district courts have gone down to a minimum. Yeah, there have been some cases. There's, there's cases where the, the plaintiff's share is nominal, like a dollar. There's also plenty of cases where the plaintiff's share is the full 25 percent. Now, I'll tell you what the pattern of cases uh, is like over the past 20 years. It's the really egregious cases where you get the award nominal, plaintiff being paid only to pay a nominal share. When I say egregious cases, I mean cases where, say, uh, a prisoner is uh, brutally raped by a, a prison guard or where a a prisoner is permanently uh, maimed or disfigured uh, by a prison guard. And so there's enough cases out there where, you know, once you see the facts of the case, you can get a pretty good sense of whether this is going to be a full 25 percent case or whether it's going to be something How would you write this if you wanted to, if you were Congress and wanted to get their version of the bill in one sentence? Yeah. How would you have written? We actually know that because the precursor bill that no, I said in one sentence. Yeah, I'm going to give the you the pre- one. precursor bill was in two sentences. The precursor, but the precursor bill included the one sentence that you're you're looking for, right. and it is in the. Uh, I'll get it. For, I'm sorry. It's in the. It's in the yellow brief at page 12. We don't have to speculate about this. So, in yellow brief page page 12. Uh, uh, under heading C, the th- beginning the, with the quotation that begins in the third line of that paragraph, this is, this is the sentence that Congress could have written, in fact, nearly did write, that would have uh, uh, adopted the respondent's position. If the award of attorney's fees is greater than 25 percent of the judgment, the excess shall be paid by the defendant. That would have been it. That would have adopted the respondent's view of the statute. But that sentence got deleted from the final legislation. You say that the uh, one way that the discretion of the district court would be guided would be by the seriousness of the offense. And you gave a couple of examples. Yeah. I think it's pretty unusual to compensate for seriousness of the defense or bad faith, I guess, of the of the uh, defendant uh, through the manipulating the attorney's fees. Yeah. Wouldn't it normally in those cases result in a higher award of damages? It is unusual, and that's because, as uh, so far as we know, this statute is the only one of its kind. This, as far as we know, this is the only statute in which Congress has uh, explicitly apportioned responsibility for attorney's Well, but fees. apportionment doesn't mean that the egregiousness of the conduct should be taken into account in fixing the size of the attorney's fees. Well, that's right, but the — I the, mean, that just doesn't follow. The question the, — if the, if the question is why is it that we see the consideration of egregiousness with this statute — but not with other fee-shifting statutes. What I'm trying to say is this is, so far as we know, the only fee-shifting statute in which uh, responsibility for attorney's fees is apportioned between the plaintiff and the defendant. Once you're going to apportion responsibility for fees between the plaintiff and the defendant, you need a basis. But I, I was talking about the amount of the, the fee. Does the, oh, amount, does the amount of the fee ever depend on the egregiousness? I, I shouldn't think it. No, no. The amount of the fee will be calculated by the lodestar. But it, in, it, right. in this case, it was, it was odd that the district judge remitted a substantial part. He put the punitive damages down almost $93,000. Right. But then in order to soften the blow, he... Uh, reduces the amount of, of, of attorney's fees. This, right. this, this is a, a double exercise of discretion that it seems to me uh, quite puzzling. Well, but th- that sort of discretion, I have to say, is, is that's a standard feature of fee-shifting statutes. I mean, fee-shifting statutes, I mean, Section 1988 is a good example. Section 1988 just says fee has to be reasonable. Could you, could you explain to me why the sentence you read would do the trick? It says what, what must be done if the award of attorney's fees is greater than 25 percent, but what if the award of attorney's fees is, let's say, 20 percent? How does that tell the court who pays the 20 percent? 
Okay, so the sentence again, if the award of attorney's fees is greater than 25 percent, the excess shall be paid by the defendant. If the award of attorney's fees is less than 25, is less than 25 percent of the judgment, then the defendant wouldn't have to pay anything under that statute. Right? But, but, uh, uh, you think it goes without saying that the plaintiff would have to pay the full 20 percent? Because it doesn't say it. So no, I think all it says is the defendant wouldn't have to pay it. Right. Right. It doesn't say anything about who, what, whether the plaintiff or, or what would no, happen. That's the, I mean, that's the point. Right. So that really right. doesn't you, — you have to read something into it. That no, doesn't no. literally say who pays if it's under 25 percent. Right. But the, the, the question is — so respondents' view of the statute as enacted is that defendants only have to pay to the of attorney's fees to the extent the fees exceed 25 percent of the judgment. Right. That, that is what this sentence says — and that's the sentence that was rejected by Congress as this — Can I ask, Mr. Banner, in, in various kinds of ways, this statute tries to reduce district court discretion over fees. I mean, if you take as the baseline 1988, which gives a, a, a court discretion over everything, the statute tried to pull back on that in various ways. But you're saying that in, in, in this particular way, when it comes to allocation, we should understand Congress to have left the courts with the full discretion that, uh, uh, that you can imagine. So why should we read it that way, given that in various other uh, ways the, the clear aim of Congress was to reduce the court's discretion? I, I, don't, I don't know that that's an ac- I don't think that's an accurate description of the aim of Congress. Certainly the statute compresses the range of possible fee awards. The, uh, 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 the fees are capped at 150 percent uh, of the judgment. That's a, that's a sharp compression of the range of possible awards. But within that range, Congress preserved virtually all of the district court's discretion under Section 1988 because all of the limitations in, uh, in this statute are all expressed in terms of reasonableness, proportionality, and, and so on. And so the, the, this, this, the, the particular provision at issue in our case is just like that. It operates within a compressed range, compressed by the cap on, uh, on fees of 150 percent of the damages. Was, was the intent to um, reduce discretion, or I thought the intent was to deter non-meritorious lawsuits. Well, the, 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 if, you, if, you add, if you ask about the, the Prison Litigation Reform Act as a whole, certainly the, the intent uh, was to deter frivolous lawsuits in order to facilitate the consideration uh, of the stronger ones. This provision has nothing to do with frivolous lawsuits. This provision only applies when a prisoner has prevailed on the merits, uh, been awarded damages, and been awarded the Well, there fees. are meritorious lawsuits on a scale right. of merit, some right. that are serious, some that are not so serious, where there can be an award. So I can see Congress giving discretion based on the nature of the claim that is more supportive of your position. Yeah, and, which that's, is, and that's exactly how the district courts have been applying the statute uh, for for more than 20 years now. Well, this been. is it's, — it's a little different. I understood the objective of Congress in order to uh, weed out uh, non-meritorious, non-meritorious suits to be to replicate to the extent they could the, the situation of, of private parties outside uh, uh, prison. There, if you have a serious injury, you quite often can go to a lawyer who would charge you a contingent fee, say 25 percent, and whatever your recovery, uh, you would owe him 25 percent of the of the judgment. And uh, you wouldn't owe him only 2 percent just because the, the judge in the case thought, well, you didn't do enough work or you could have done better. Yeah, that's uh — that's simply an incorrect view of the statute to say that Congress intended to replicate anything close to a contingent fee regime uh, for prisoners. That could very easily have been accomplished simply by making prisoners completely ineligible for fees under Section 1988. That would have thrown prisoners back on a contingent fee regime, just like uh, yeah, members but of they the could, general public. Could, yeah, but you can determine that if you're on a straight contingent basis, that that uh, — I mean, you have to have enough of an incentive to get lawyers to take the cases and at the same time uh, uh, discourage prisoners from saying, you know, 
I think this is a serious case, while an objective review, which is what plaintiffs' lawyers do, uh, would suggest that it's not. Okay, but this statute doesn't doesn't create anything close to a contingent fee regime. All the statute does is say that the plaintiff has to pay some share of the uh, attorney's fees. How large is that share? A, a, a portion of the judgment not exceeding 25 percent. I mean, it's not — it's — it's con, con, the Congress could no, have said — No, I would say that the plaintiff has to pay some share of the attorney's fees does sound an awful lot like a contingent fee arrangement. Except that it, it's, it would be an unusual contingent fee arrangement that would range from, from 25 percent down to nominal, which is why I, I say well, it's not — Well, that's why I don't think yeah. your position is, is accurate. I mean, you are the one who's saying it's from 25 percent down to nothing. What I'm suggesting is, as I think it is in the contingent fee situation — the lawyer gets his cut before uh, before the plaintiff is paid off. Right, but that's why I'm saying that what Congress did in this statute doesn't even closely res- doesn't remotely resemble uh, a, a contingent fee regime. Congress could have imposed a contingent fee regime, uh, for example, just by saying 25 percent, or by doing well. By, I'm, well, I'm, but I'm, the I'm, other I'm sorry, but your adversary is saying that's what they did under his reading of the statute, or under his yeah. reading of the right but statute. The, but, but that. that I think we're going in circles. That's an untenable reading of the statute because the statute doesn't say 25 percent. Well, but you're just nodding back to 25%. saying that that argument doesn't make any sense because if you read the statute the way I do, it doesn't make any sense. Look, the 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 interpretation that respondents favor was in the precursor bill that got taken out. What we're left with is a, a, a ceiling, but but no floor. We're left with not exceeding 25 percent. You have the language, but, but, but the, the, it depends, I guess, a lot on the background that this is being passed against. And I, as I've read this, the background, I, I tend to agree with what the background is, but I'm not sure what the evidence is this. The background is 1988. Right. Now, you say that because I knew you would agree with me on that, but what's the basis for it? I see one thing for the basis, because if it's a 1988 is the background, then normally the prevailing party, in an appropriate case, gets all the fee. He doesn't have to pay a dime. Right. Okay? Right. So we're, if, but now, it's, so it's important. Are we operating against that as background or something as more general, which is, the, which was the Chief Justice's question? The, and the only answer you've given so far is, is, uh, well, look at, read the language. No, I'm, uh, I'm not sure about the language. I mean, is there anything else that supports the 1988 as the basic background? Yes, indeed there is. The, the, uh, uh, before this statute was enacted, the fee-shifting rule governing prisoner cases was Section 1988, where the prisoner received the, the prisoner was just like any other litigant uh, prevailing on a civil rights case. The, the prisoner got, uh, uh, the, rather, the defendant paid the full 100 percent. Uh, of the uh, uh, of the attorney's fees, this statute was enacted against that background. This statute was 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 enacted evidently to give prisoners some skin in the game, but not a not a fixed twenty five percent skin, a, a variable percentage that the district court could uh, adjust uh, uh, in the exercise of its discretion. Well, if there are no further questions, I'll reserve my time. Thank you, counsel. Mr. Legner? Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. As, as you noted, Mr. Chief Justice, the purpose that Congress had in enacting this provision was to replicate a contingent fee arrangement. Our interpretation. Why? Where do you get that from? Where in the. Anywhere is that said? Is that discussed? Is that um, indicated in the in this section at all? Sure, Your Honor. We get that from a variety of sources. The first is the statute's text. Congress said that the district court shall apply a portion of the judgment to satisfy. Can I I just ask you something about the statute? Sure. Let's assume the statute read without the parenthetical. When it said a portion of the judgment shall be applied to satisfy the amount of attorney's fees awarded against the defendant, would that mean 25 percent, absent that 25 percent? Absent the parenthetical? Absent the parenthetical, 
if the parenthetical was not in there, then, this, then the provision would uh, mean that the attorney's fees uh, award shall be fulfilled by the judgment. Uh, no, it says a portion of the judgment. So it doesn't say all of the judgment. It so doesn't say the judgment shall be applied to satisfy the amount of attorney's fees. If all it said is a portion of the judgment shall be applied to satisfy the amount of attorney's fees against the defendant. Do you think in that standing alone, the district court would have discretion to give a dollar? No, Your it's Honor. A, no, it's a portion of the judgment. It, it, it is technically a portion of the judgment, but it doesn't uh, — what that does is it reads out the words to satisfy. A Why? Por- a portion is a portion. It's not all of it. A, a portion is a portion, but what that does it is it doesn't say reckon- all of the judgment. It says a portion. A, a, absolutely, Your Honor. So why didn't Congress say a portion of the judgment, 25 percent, instead of not to exceed 25 percent? Why not doesn't to ex- it just say a portion of the judgment, 25 percent, shall be applied to satisfy the amount? Your Honor, the not to exceed 25 percent language in this — No, no, that's — I'm asking you, what's the difference between the two things? The difference between the two things is that uh, in the statute as written, uh, Congress recognized that um, there will be circumstances in which the entire fee award will be satisfied by less than 25 percent. In the uh, hypothetical, without that parenthetical, it, it provides that a portion will be used, but for the purpose of satisfying or fulfilling I'm the sorry. award. I'm sorry. Is your view, let's assume, it's highly unlikely, but it can happen, the, um, the attorney's fees are less than 25 percent of the judgment. Who pays under your reading of the statute as written? If the attorney's fees are less than 25 percent of the judgment, the uh, prisoner plaintiff pays. And, and the defendant pays nothing. In that circumstance, that's right, All Your right. Honor. So what is the difference by Congress saying a portion of the judgment not to exceed 25 percent? Why didn't it just say a portion of the judgment, parenthetical, 25 percent shall be applied? Under your reading, the two mean exactly the same thing. No, Your Honor, because there are circumstances in which, say, 17 percent of the judgment will be sufficient to fulfill the fee award. If there's a $100,000 judgment and a $17,000 fee award, 17 percent of the uh, of the judgment will fulfill that fee award. That's why Congress didn't say a portion. Then you're doing away with the shall apply. No one ever speaks of that shall apply as meaning that you give more than 25 percent. You don't award him attorney's fees of 25 percent of the judgment. They do not apportion uh, — this statute does not apportion — allow for the apportionment of more than 25 percent of the judgment to fees. But there are circumstances in which the fee award is 25 percent or less than the judgment, and we cite those in footnote 2 of our brief. Mr. Mr. Please, please correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, but my understanding is that if you talk about contingent fees and you talk about apportionment, you're talking about apples and oranges. Some pe- fees may be contingent. Some Fees may not be. All the statute does is say whatever the fee is, 25 percent of it, or no more than 25 percent of it, 25 percent of it shall be paid by the, by the defendant. That, that, am, am I correct? You're correct, Your Honor, that the statute from, says — From the award. From the award. The statute says that uh, 20, no more than 25 percent, uh, but 25 percent or less, if necessary, to fulfill, in other words, to satisfy the fee award, shall be applied. The statute does not give uh, discretion to apportion uh, th- that amount. And indeed, uh, it says not to exceed. It sounds like it's imagining a, an award that does exceed. And it says not to exceed. What happens when it does exceed? Then the defendant picks up the tab. But the not to exceed language would be a strange thing for Congress to put in if it really meant the plaintiff pays 25 percent, and if the judgment is larger, the defendant pays the rest. 
Well, Your Honor, the reason they use not to exceed is that there are cases where the plaintiff won't pay 25 percent, for instance, where the fee award is equal to 17 percent of the judgment. So in that circumstance, the, the fee award will be fulfilled or satisfied with less than 25 percent of the judgment. Mr. Ledner, you put a lot of emphasis on the word satisfy, and I think in, in, in most cases you're right as to what satisfy means. I guess the question I have is whether in this context one should um, think that the word satisfy says anything. And, and my question goes basically that in many cases, and probably in the vast majority of cases, uh, no part of the judgment, including the full judgment, could possibly satisfy um, the fee award. So given that we're talking about a circumstance in which in the vast majority of cases the fee award is not going to be satisfied, why should we understand the word satisfy in the way that uh, you think we should? Uh, well, Justice Kagan, because under our interpretation, there will be some circumstances in which the fee award will be completely sa- satisfied. Additionally, under our reading of that — Well, I agree with you that there might be some. But the question is, you know, would Congress have used that uh, — the, the word in your sense, knowing that in most cases it wasn't going to be full payment? It just seems as though when this statute uses the word, given — uh, what actually happens in the real world, it meant something more along the lines of contribute to the fee award. I, I, I understand, Your Honor, but, but a couple points on, on that. First, the fact that the uh, fee, uh, that the judgment may not be sufficient to fulfill the award with the 25 percent cap or otherwise does not change the definition of the word satisfy. That, our, under our reading, the district court is required to use the judgment for the purpose of fulfilling the fee award. The district court may be stopped in circumstances, but that's by virtue of the operation of the 25 percent cap, which is a separate intervening force that impacts the, the, the uh, uh, apportionment uh, uh, in, in that situation. But furthermore, under, uh, under petitioner's reading, which p- would permit a nominal amount, you know, petitioner indicated that uh, today that a $1 apportionment would be sufficient. That in no way intends to satisfy under any doubt. You're, you're, you're well, using — well, right, Finish, finish. Go. I mean, I think that that's wrong. I mean, I guess what I'm, I'm suggesting is that this language should be read or could be read uh, to say, you know, uh, shall go towards satisfying. So a dollar would go a small way towards satisfying, $10 would go a slightly larger, and so forth and so on. Well, Your Honor, under, under that reading, satisfied need not even be in the statute. We could just lift those words out of the statute as it is right now, in which case you would have the requirement that the Court apply a portion of the judgment. But Congress didn't stop there. It stated that you stated the purpose for the application of the, the, the judgment, which is to satisfy. And, and our interpretation is consistent with Congress's purposes underlying this. Congress had two purposes underlying this provision. Congress wanted to put plaintiffs in the uh, — prisoner plaintiffs in the pos- a position similar to typical civil tort plaintiffs. Uh, and additionally, Congress wanted to reduce the burden of prisoner litigation on the government. There was discussion uh, during the legislative debates uh, that we cite at page 27 of our brief, where Congress was explicitly concerned with uh, attorney's fees awards uh, that the government was uh, being um, uh, assessed. You previously started to explain what evidence there is that Congress wanted to put prisoners in a situation similar to um, to uh, a plaintiff in an ordinary tort case. But I don't think you finished your, your explanation. What, what evidence is there of that? Well, Your Honor, in terms of the uh, discussion uh, in the Senate, uh, for instance, um, there were statements, uh, we cite one of them at page 24 of our brief, a statement by Senator Dole that said that prisoners that, uh, need to — prisoners do not bear the same types of opportunity costs as non-incarcerated prisoners. And that has contributed to this flood, massive flood of litigation uh, in pr- uh, uh, federal courts. And we want — one of the, one of the uh, efforts Congress then had was to put those prisoners — 
to, to require the prisoners to bear some of the costs of living. I'm sorry. That's true. The non-incarcerated uh, plaintiffs are under 1988. They get all of their fees. If they wanted to equalize them, they would have left them alone. Your Honor, Congress made a compromise. There's non-incarcerated civil rights plaintiffs under 1988, absolutely. But then there's civil tort plaintiffs. But he not didn't under- say civil tort plaintiffs. He said non-incarcerated plaintiffs. He didn't say tort plaintiffs. That's true, Your Honor. But by, with, with the discretion-limiting uh, provisions uh, uh, of Section E.D., Congress clearly moved away from Section 1988. Well, it did. You're right. I have the same question that the last Actually, that was exactly what you said. Now, your, your things in your brief talk, they say limit costs and put it in the same position as non-incarcerated plaintiff. What non-incarcerated plaintiff? The first sentence of the statute says, in any action brought by a prisoner in which attorney's fees are authorized under Section 1988. Now, that's fairly strong evidence that they're thinking, since it's right in the statute, the first line, that they're thinking of 1988 plaintiffs. Uh, uh, now, that's, I'm just saying that I can't get too much out of the language. You're right. It would have been uh, absolutely clear if they'd said to help satisfy. Then you'd lose. But they didn't. They said to satisfy. So we have the language up here about up to, and we have the language down there about satisfy. Now, at that point, I myself am not certain. But then I do look to the purpose, which is what you're talking about. And then when I see that, the first sentence is, put them in the same position as 1988 plaintiffs. For that's the only instance when they're going to get their attorney's fees. But, but, okay, they will have to pay up to 25%. Now, up to 25%. Now we get into the language. So I get into the puzzle. My thought was, which I'm addressing the question to, we both have the sentence that he quoted on page 12 of his brief, which would have made a choice. We can do this in one of two ways. We can say, prisoner, you always pay 25 percent. Or we could say, judge, you decide up to 25 percent. Which way? Well, I suddenly had this thought. If we take the former, given the other provision of the statute, which says you have to limit the attorney fees generally to a fair amount given the overall judgment, and these judgments are small, the poor district judge on your interpretation, facing a problem where the thing is small, all the burden is going to be thrown on the lawyer it's going to be thrown on the lawyer because he'll have to reduce the whole attorney fee in order to make this prisoner who suffered a lot not be penniless or not really be hurt a lot. See, he wants to help the prisoner. Are you following what I'm saying? I am. Okay. And then, then the only way to help the prisoner who's gotten such a small award is to reduce the whole attorney's fees. But if we make it discretionary, there's another way. You can have a reasonable attorney fee here, a little bit higher, and the prisoner doesn't pay the whole 25 percent. We put some of it on the prison guard, the state that's acted so abominably. Now, I think, which is the choice there? They're both reasonable choices. Then I go to page 12 in his brief and the preceding language, and I conclude, hey, Congress was on a seesaw here, and they ended up on his side. Now, that's a little complicated, but uh, that's where I am at the moment. What do you want to say? A lot, Your Honor. The, um, uh, uh, you're right that the first sentence of Section D1 states uh, that in any situation and where fees would be authorized under Section 1988, but it then continues, that sentence continues, such fees shall not be awarded except and then the provision goes on to restrain the court's discretion in awarding a fee under Section 1988. So in this provision, Congress moved away. Congress started with Section 1988 because yeah. these are claims under Section 1988. Yeah. But for this specific class of litigant, 
Congress uh, moved away from the uh, normal operation of Section 1988. Well, that's conclusion. Now, but remember, if you follow this complicated argument, the, sure. sorry to be sick on but the, really, I've got the choice down in my mind. Did, it's the, the victim here is not the government, and it's not the, the victim on your interpretation, as, as I've been through it. It is, not the, it is not so much the prisoner. It is not so much the government. It is the lawyer. Because, because as I said, the, the, the prisoner who suffered some, you know, pretty bad treatment and has got a very small award, the judge can help him out only by cutting the whole legal fee. But if the opposite interpretation is right, the judge has another tool. The other tool is to make the defendants here pay more than 75 percent. And so now we have two tools. The judge has more discretion. He can deal with the different cases differently. And first they tried the one, rejected it on page 12, and now they tried the other. Now, now that's where I am. And I, sure, Your Honor. And, and I would add that the, the court, or I'm sorry, Congress, in this provision, limited the court's discretion to award attorney's fees in other ways. For instance, the total amount of the attorney's fee is capped at 150 percent of the mm-hmm. judgment. Mm-hmm. So Congress took away discretion and limited the amount of attorney's fees yeah. uh, in, in that way. Well, that seems I, right, uh, that, that, that Congress limited discretion in certain ways. The question is, did it limit discretion in this way? Yes, Your Honor, that's exactly right. And when we have a a provision in which if this Court is unclear whether it limited discretion, it can look around to the surrounding provisions and find only situations where Congress did limit discretion. And it's at odds with — But that sounds as though we're just going to interpret the statute in a general direction no matter what. Uh, Your Honor, I think that that contextual argument supports our reading of satisfy. I think that, you know, first and foremost, our interpretation is grounded in and gives effect to the word to satisfy. The fact that we read it as non-discretionary or not discretionary conferring is supported by the surrounding provisions of section. Do you have a, this is the same question that was asked of Mr. Banner. Do you have a way that Congress could have written this statute to clearly state what Mr. Banner thinks it means, you know, that's better than this? If Congress uh, wanted to state, uh, Congress could have used uh, language that it always uses in fee-shifting statutes when it intends to confer discretion on district courts. In those fee-shifting statutes, Congress uses may instead of shall and states the court in its discretion and so, for instance, the court could have said the district, whenever a monetary judgment is entered, the court may, in its discretion, apply a, apply a portion of it to the fee award. That's what petitioner's reading means. Mr. Legner, if, as this discussion has gone on, we conclude that this statute is ambiguous. It could be read your way. It could be read their way. Then, as Justice Breyer suggested, why shouldn't we take 1988 as the closest, rather than, I think you suggested that, well, then look to the American rule. Under the American rule, each party bears his or her own, her own counsel fees. Your, your, your Honor, in that situation, it's important to understand that Congress explicitly moved away from the operation of Section 1988. So it moved away from the broad or wide fee shifting or complete fee shifting under Section 1988 to something else. And in, in so moving, it moved towards the American rule. Now, Congress made a compromise. Congress decided that uh, prisoner plaintiffs uh, should be allowed uh, to be permitted to retain at least 75 percent of their uh, of their judgment. But the fact that Congress reached that compromise doesn't mean that we're still really in the background of Section 1988, especially where Congress moved away from the operation of Section 1988 in so many ways. For instance, in Section D1, Congress uh, specified that the amount of attorney's fees shall be proportionally related to the relief uh, ordered. That is uh, completely the opposite of the rule under Section 1988. Here's another, here's another, uh, I don't know, looking at the dictionary here, and uh, unsatisfy. Isn't it the case that the government pays the rest of the reasonable fee, right? 
yes, Your Honor. Okay. And everybody knows the government pays the rest of it, right? Yes. Your okay. Honor. So think of a case where it's 12 percent, which you think it can't be, but suppose the judge says, huh, 12 percent. You paid 12 percent. Okay? Now, they're paying the rest from the government. He's paying the 12 percent. In the circumstances, that satisfies the debt. Think of bankruptcy. Think of a settlement. Think of a settlement. You pay for the settlement. You don't pay the whole thing. You pay some of it. That's why I, I, I won't read the dictionary. It's a little complicated. But it seems to me that, that the uh, — luckily, he, we have a dictionary here all the time. <laughs> and and, and uh, uh, it's, it's helpful. And I understand. I understand the argument. Okay, then it satisfies but, it. Then the whole statute's but, linguistically but, satisfied. But, but no, I, but, but we disagree. <laughs> when Congress uses the term "satisfy," yeah. it means to fulfill the obligation. Yeah, we, right. And, we, and the obligation is to pay that portion of the debt that isn't going to be paid by the defendant. And by the time you're finished, the debt's satisfied. In in the first sentence of ED two, the obligation is to pay to fulfill the fee award from the judgment with a capped amount, but this is no different than circumstances in which Congress specifies a primary source to be used to fulfill an obligation and then realizes that sometimes that primary source may not be sufficient to fulfill that obligation and then specifies a secondary source. I mean, if my, if my wife gives me a carrot for dinner to satisfy my hunger, <laughs> but she knows that if she does that, I will just go in the refrigerator and stuff myself with lots of other stuff so that I won't be hungry anymore. I don't know, does that make the carrot <laughs> sufficient to satisfy my hunger? Uh, no, Your Honor. In, in, that's, uh, in, in that situation, it would probably, you know, be an suppose she knows. Suppose she knows that he's going to eat that delicious turkey sandwich in the refrigerator. <laughs> now, now the carrots are just enough to fill up that little hole that will remain. <laughs> But, 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 true, but, but in that circumstance, <laughs> if, if the first source of satisfying Justice Alito's hunger was what his wife provides him, then, you know, if that is ultimately not sufficient. But that's not. Can, it's up to 25 percent. They didn't say 25 percent. Well, for instance. 25 percent of what she cooks. It, it, <laughs> because that, that recognizes that uh, when Justice Alito's wife makes a, a casserole, 17 percent of that casserole may satisfy his hunger. There will be circumstances in which not the entire 25 percent will be needed to fulfill uh, the obligation or the requirement. Can I ask about something else, which is we've made the uh, American rule the presumption, but I come at it, why aren't we looking at the discretionary rule of 1988? Um, in fee-shifting fee statutes that are clear, um, and this is clear, they're shifting some fees, we tend to give district courts maximum discretion. We don't look to tie their hands. Um, why do you think that given the fact that some plaintiffs are seriously injured by state defendants, that Congress would have wanted to take away from the district court absolute discretion to ensure that a plaintiff is adequately compensated for the severity of their injury? Because, Your Honor, in those circumstances where the Congress does confer on the district court absolute or broad discretion. It uses discretion-conferring language such as may and in its discretion. Section 1988B itself uses the words in its discretion. And there's other examples in Section 505 of the Copyright Act or Section 1132G1 of ERISA. Those, in, in those provisions, Congress provided that the Court may, in its discretion, award fees. Congress didn't use those words here. What Congress did was it made a choice. Congress said that there is a lot of uh, prisoner litigation out there, and the government is bearing a, a huge burden of this, and we are in particular concerned about attorney's fees awards. So Congress made a compromise. 
Congress reached an agreement that will decrease or limit the government's exposure to fee awards at the same time as treating a, a prisoner plaintiff more like a civil tort plaintiff. Civil tort plaintiffs may have meritorious claims and get compens- compensatory damages and large punitive damages awards. But the general rule is that those but that's plaintiffs exactly right. They don't get punitive awards under 1988. Not under 1988. You know, that, but that's the point, isn't it? Well, you, you, Your Honor, the point is that Congress meant to, Congress clearly departed from the operation of Section 1988. In the other provisions of D1, for instance, when it capped the reasonable hourly rate, uh, put in the require, uh, capped the overall amount of the fee award, and put in the requirement that the fees be proportionally related, Congress signal, signaled its intent that the wide discretion under 1988 is not at play here anymore. We've moved well, away from that. Well, these plaintiffs cannot receive punitive damages against the state, correct? These plaintiffs did receive punitive they did, damages. and it was put down, and it was reduced. It was, it, it was remitted, some of it, but the, 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 these plaintiffs still received over $270,000 in punitive damage award in this case. Your Honors, our interpretation best serves the plain language of that Congress used and best serves the statute's context, as well as serves the purposes underlying the PLRA. Thank you very much, Your Honors. Thank you, Counsel. Uh, seven minutes, Mr. Banner. Well, the crux of this is the word satisfy. The question is whether the word satisfy can bear the weight that respondents put on it. And so All I want to do is emphasize how common it is to use the phrase applied to satisfy in the way that Justice Kagan suggested to mean not, not, not applied to pay completely, but applied in that direction, applied toward satisfying. So, for example, the rental payments on a violin can be applied to satisfy the purchase price if the, if the student persists in taking lessons. Obviously, the rental payments aren't going to completely fulfill uh, the purchase price. They're going to be applied in that direction. Uh, work an attorney does on a pro bono matter can be applied, the hours can be applied to satisfy the attorney's pro bono obligation, even if it's an hour, just a couple of hours. In ordinary English, we say those hours are applied to satisfy the pro bono uh, uh, obligation. Congress uses applied to satisfy in the same sense in statutes. Uh, we give an example at page 8 of the, of the yellow brief involving uh, extra pay for Navy personnel who spend more than 48 hours on a submarine in a month. But the relevant provision in the statute is hours in excess of 48 in a given month may be applied to satisfy the 48-hour requirement in subsequent months, even if they don't completely fulfill the 48-hour requirement in subsequent months. So in this statute, when Congress used the phrase applied to satisfy, the most plausible interpretation of it is applied in the direction of satisfying, not applied to to pay completely. Do you have any sense of uh, how many cases up to 25 percent of the judgment actually will be able to satisfy? How often it is that the attorney's fees are less than than 25 percent? No, how how often it is that the amount, you know, whether it's uh, uh, 25 percent of the judgment or some lesser amount, will actually satisfy the amount of uh, fees? Oh, it's extraordinarily rare because, because, you know, these cases might take hundreds of, of hours to litigate, and the average uh, uh, monetary award is a bit more than $4,000. So there's a, a, an enormous mismatch uh, uh, here. It's a very, very rare prisoner case uh, in which the uh, 25% of the judgment would even come close to fully, completely paying the, uh, the obligation for attorney's fees. That's right. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. The case is submitted.